Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here at City Church. If, if that is super confusing to you, um, I, as of last week, am officially a pastor, not a pastor in training here at City Church. Very excited. Um, but so good to see you guys. Thanks so much for being here. I love that we get to do one gathering again instead of two, because this uh, just feels so much more, uh, so much more like the family that we want it to feel like in here, and it's great to be able to see everybody at the same time. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to First Chronicles. Uh, if... Uh, if you're like most people and you don't really know where that is, feel free to look at your table of contents or look it up. It's fine. Unless you spend all your time in the Chronicles, which is fine, I guess. But it's pretty early on. Uh, we'll be in First, uh, first Chronicles 29, chapter 29, here in just a bit. Uh, so last week, Marcus kicked off this series that we are going through this time of year called Give Like God. So with this series, we are specifically looking at... Um, how the generosity of, of God leads us to our own generosity towards others. So the, the big idea is that God has been unbelievably generous towards all of us as his people, and, and as a direct result of that, as a direct result of God's generosity, we are called to be unbelievably generous in response. So today we're going to look at what I think is a really interesting Old Testament uh, passage that, that kind of highlights this idea at work. It shows that it's happening. It's a time when, uh, when God's people in the Old Testament really grasped that big uh, idea really well, and they, they acted accordingly. Um, it's ringing. Do I need to change mics? Just for the real quick. If not, I'm good. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Don't be surprised if I switch microphones halfway through. We like to keep everybody on their toes. Um, so I, I think there's a lot that we can learn from this passage where the Old Test, in the Old Testament where we see God's people responding to God's generosity in this way. So let me give you a little bit of background first before we dive into this. So it, at this time in, in First Chronicles and other parts of the Old Testament, um, the, the people of God, the, the way that it worked to be able to, to be in the presence of God uh, was that the, the presence of God actually dwelled in a physical location. There was a specific physical place where God's presence would come down, and that is where people could encounter him. It was called the tabernacle, or more broadly, the temple at times. It was a, a place where people could come together, they could worship together, they could off, offer sacrifices together, and they could interact with the, with the Spirit of God himself. It was a, this, this physical structure. Um, it doesn't really work that way anymore. The, the New Testament is pretty clear in a few places that we as followers of Jesus, after Jesus' sacrifice, the new covenant says that we are now God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in us as his people. His presence resides in us, not in a physical structure. So this building that we are all in, this is not a temple. This is not a tabernacle. This is just a building. 
This is a building that we are incredibly thankful for. We are so, so fortunate to have this building. It does often house God's people as we interact with God. Also, a variety of other uh, of God's creations that we have an exterminator for, but it's fine. <laughs> They're not here when you guys show up, I promise. Um, it's just a building, though. Nothing about the building itself makes the Spirit of God be present. It is the people who gather together in the space. And as proof of that, before we had this building, many years ago, we actually met in Jackson Terminal, which is an event venue down in the old city. It's an old rail depot um, that is now basically just an an event venue, concert venue, whatever, whoever wants to pay the money to use it, it's that venue. Um, And so on several occasions, we would show up on Sunday morning after an event had ended probably like mere hours before we showed up and there's still like kegs and it smells like weed and it smells like all like it was it was nasty a few times um we got it cleaned up for the most part and guess what the people of God showed up and God's presence was there and it wasn't a temple by any means uh but but it didn't matter the building didn't matter it was the people of God that came together that the presence of God dwelled in that place. And again, the same is true with this facility about the presence of God, not the other stuff. Um, <laughs> even though this is more of a church, this, people would look at this and be like, oh, that's a church building. There's a, probably a church that meets in there. But that doesn't affect the spirit of God dwelling in this place. Um, so it has everything to do with, with the people of God in the space. But at the time of First Chronicles, that, that was not the case. It, there was a specific location that God had set aside for where his presence would come down. They could interact with the presence of God. So when we pick up things in chapter 29, um, God's people are in need of a temple. They don't have one. They don't have a, a place that is suitable for that. And so building a temple, especially one for the whole nation of, of God's people, was a community project. It was a really big task. It took everyone participating. It took all of God's people coming together and offering up money and materials and time and and all the different resources that they had available to them to make it happen. It took all of them chipping in in some way and doing their part. And at this point in the story that we're picking up in, Israel's king, his name was David, um, he, he had asked God's people to do that. He had asked them to, to give towards the building and the construction of this temple. And so what we're about to read is basically after that's all happened, this is David's thank you speech, essentially. He stands up in front of the people to thank them in response to to the generosity that they've shown. So let's take a look. We're going to go back through this passage, starting in verse 10 of chapter 29. It says, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks. We give you thanks and praise your glorious name. So I want you to think about what David just said or or the idea of what he just communicated. David has just overseen probably the most, if not one of the most, successful giving campaigns in history. He is now addressing the people who made that possible, the people who gave all of these resources. 
who would you expect him to talk about? If you were at like some big gala where people had given a lot of money, you would expect the person to get up and thank who? The people who gave all the money, right? This is your, this is your end of year campaign moment where you get to make all of the shareholders feel so amazing about themselves. But David does, he does get to some thanks to the people eventually, but that is not what he leads with. That is not what he does first. His main focus is something else entirely. And, and his focus is, is fully on God in, in this speech that he's giving. It's a little bit different, is it not, to what, to what we would think about a, a, a thank you speech to donors looking like. And so at this point, we're about halfway into David's speech, or David's thank you, and he, he hasn't really said anything about the people who actually gave. Instead, he has repeatedly and, and exclusively acknowledged the incredible riches and generosity of God. So far, all that he has done is called people's attention to the fact that everything on earth, including everything that they were given or everything that was given towards the temple, everything belongs to and comes from God. God himself. God rightfully claims ownership of everything. And I say everything uh, because according to the passage, the list of things that belong to God in David's words include greatness, power, glory, majesty, splendor, wealth, honor, strength, power again, and uh, also everything in heaven and earth is what he ends with, just in case he was like, you know, I probably missed a few things. That basically covers everything. In David's mind, every single thing that exists rightfully belongs to God himself. So here's another way that, that the Bible puts it in Psalm chapter 50. So this is God talking, or these are the words of God. It says, uh, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. And look at this line. It says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. The scriptures consistently teach us that God rightfully owns every single thing that there is. God even says, if I were to get hungry, I would not even tell you. Why would I bother? That's like if I were to go to my six-month-old when I get home and be like, Jude, I'm going to need a sandwich. Stat. And he's going to look at me like he always does, which is like, I'm pumped to see you, but I don't know what we're doing here. And that's, that's exactly what would happen. I wouldn't ask him. That wouldn't make any sense. So this, when the scriptures teach us that, it, it means that everything was given to us by God. So ultimately, if, if he gives it to us, if it belongs to him, then once we have it, it still belongs to him. It's still his possession. Everything on heaven, in heaven, everything on earth, it is all his, including, and I would even say especially, uh, our, our resources, our money. That's exactly what's happening in this passage. So um, you might respond, maybe you won't, but I know there are people who might respond to that by saying something along the lines of like, okay, I work pretty hard though for everything that I have. You know, I, I think that I earned what I have. It's, it's mine by, by right. But here's the thing, who, who gave you the strength or the ability to work that hard? Who... Who taught you how to have that work ethic? Oh, I learned it from my parents. Who put you in that family? 
I studied really hard when I was in school to get ahead. I, I put in the hours. Who gave you the brain and the intellect and the desire to study that hard? Who enabled you to be there? Are you seeing where this is going? Everything, everything, not just resources, everything we have ultimately comes from God and therefore is God's. Uh, I love the way that uh, the late Tim Keller put this in a book. He has a book called Generous Justice. It's a fantastic book. Um, but he, he puts this idea this way. He says, if you had been born on a mountaintop in Tibet in the 13th century instead of a Western country in the 20th century, then no matter how hard you worked, you wouldn't have had much to show for it. If you have money, power, and status today, it is due to the century and place in which you were born, to your talents and capacities and health, none of which you earned. In short, all your resources are in the end the gift of God. Everything that we have is from God himself. Now, for those of us who may still be having a hard time with this idea, um, Here's why I think we struggle with it. I, I think that some of us, or many of us, honestly, have operated for so long as if our money belongs to us that we have actually begun to believe that it is ours. We've operated in that reality for so long that we actually believe that to be true, even if it's not. Um, so I'll explain it with a, a story about uh, this building, since we were talking about it. Uh, when we inherited this property, we... we inherited everything that was a part of this property, including the dumpster that sits on the other side of the parking lot. That's our dumpster. It's, you know, nothing fancy. It's a dumpster. Uh, but before long, after we got this building, including the dumpster, and we started using this space, uh, we realized there were a good number of people using that dumpster that were not us. <laughs> Uh, to the point that we were having to pay a significant amount of money to actually empty that dumpster t two or three times more often than we were supposed to empty it. And so we were paying, you know, two and three times as much as we were supposed to, to, to have to do that. Literally money in the trash. That is what that is. So, so we put a lock on the dumpster. That seemed like it makes sense. We have the key. We have the trash. It's fine. Well, one day, uh, someone from our staff was walking out to their car, and they encountered a woman in the parking lot uh, that they didn't recognize who had handfuls of trash bags um, walking towards our newly locked dumpster. Uh, and as politely as possible, they explained the situation to her. Hey, we recently got this building. You know, we got the dumpster. It's for our building use. You know, here's the schedule for pickup. Explained it as best, she could, as best they could to this woman, um, and immediately her demeanor changed from, like, unpleasantly meeting a new person to, like, very angry. Very, very angry. Uh, she, she started yelling. She started getting real upset. She said, this is a direct quote from this person. She said, I have been bringing my trash to this dumpster for 15 years. Just because you own it now doesn't mean you get to decide who does and doesn't use it. <laughs> that is, in fact, exactly what that means. <laughs> um, but, but I feel her pain, right? I understand what she's saying. She had been using this dumpster as if it was her own personal dumpster for over a decade. Who's this random person that's just coming along saying that she couldn't use it anymore? Right? But here's what happened. She had been treating that dumpster like it was hers for so long that she had convinced herself that it was hers. 
that it belonged to her. And anybody that tried to take that away from her or tell her to do something else with it was, was way off. I, I can't help but think that, that some of us are actually in a pretty similar place when it comes to our resources in life. Uh, I, I think some of us have operated as if all of our money, all of our resources is our own. We've operated that way for so long that we treat any claim that God makes to that as suspect at best. We, we treat any call to be generous as, uh, as an affront to, to us and, and our individuality. We treat any wisdom or instruction on how we should or shouldn't use our money with, with skepticism and hostility because we have operated for so long as if it is ours. And so anytime that God asks us to do something different with our money or our resources that we don't necessarily want to do or feel inclined to do, we feel like he's overstepping his bounds. And I think what we've actually done is just train ourselves to believe that God's stuff is our stuff. But it's not. And and David knows that it's not. And that's why, despite this incredible, absolutely incredible generosity of the people standing before him in this passage, he starts by, by thanking God for his generosity towards those people that even gave them the capacity to be generous in turn. He knows that God is where all of this starts. And, and then, and only then, after he has done all of that, David finally gets around to talking about some of the people that are there. But even when he starts talking about the generosity of the people, it is still all centered on the idea that it was because God was generous to them first. So I'll show you, I'll show you what I mean. We're going to pick the, the passage back up in verse 14 if you're following along. It says, but who, David says this, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. So even in acknowledging the extravagant generosity of the people who are here, David kind of downplays their generosity, honestly, and he highlights the God who even made it possible for them in the first place. David's prayer is literally saying, thank you, God, for giving us some of your stuff so that we could then give it back to you. That is, that is what David is saying. Central to his understanding of generosity is that all of this stuff ultimately belongs to God anyways. So here, here's why this is so important. Here's why knowing this matters so much. For us to get anywhere in, in becoming a generous person, for any of us to become a generous person, we have to first understand and accept that nothing that we have ultimately belongs to us anyways. And and if you don't get that, if you don't understand that, or you don't agree with that, it will always feel like God's call to be generous is him trying to take something from you. It will always feel like that. 
You will always feel like when God calls you towards generosity that he is trying to to rob you of something that is rightfully yours. But when you understand that every single thing you have belongs to God anyways, generosity makes total sense. If, If all of this belongs to God anyways, then doing what he wants with it is a very logical response. This is the word that, that theologians and historians have, have uh, called, they've called it stewardship is the word that they've used. So we, we are to be stewards of our resources um, that we have been given by God. Now, the, the role of steward is not really uh, a, modern, a modern concept that we, that we have in, in our society, but I think a, a decent modern equivalent would be like a, a money manager or a, an investor that you would pay. So if you have ever worked with a financial planner or an, an investor, their job is to take money that you give them and then invest that money, manage that money, do things with it in ways that are in your best interest. That is what they do. And, and to be sure, the way that it's set up, uh, they also get a, a, a cut of that as incentive for doing well. There are some benefits to them of managing your money well, but at the same time, they actually have an obligation to invest your money in ways that most benefit you, that are in your best interest, that, to the point that there are actually legal repercussions if it is ever found out or proven that they did something other than that. And it's because it's, it's your money that they're investing. They are handling your resources, your money. That's how stewardship works. And that's the framework that we are given for how we should view our resources that we have been given by God, that we are stewards. We are simply called to manage it, invest it, steward it in ways that bring about the ultimate good of God and his kingdom here on earth. Now, to be sure, there there may be some benefits to that at times. God does give us things to enjoy in life, absolutely, but that is secondary at best. The primary thing that we are to do with what we've been given is to manage it according to how God wants it managed. And, and so if we neglect to steward God's resources in the ways that he wants us to, it's not just that we've neglected to do something good that we should have done, it's, it's that we've actually wronged God himself. I mentioned this a few, a few weeks ago in the Ten Commandments series on the, on the week on stealing. In Malachi, God actually makes this very clear. He, he says uh, in, in that book, you can go back and listen to it, uh, he says that people who have not been generous are actually stealing from God. If it's ultimately God's money, then not using it in the way that he wants it to be used is theft from God. So th- this is a type of thing that God takes very seriously. But when we see, but when God's people see their money, like we see in this passage that and the people that David's talking to, if we see our money and our resources as coming from God and belonging to God, then, then we get something altogether different. Instead, we get a, a really beautiful picture of generosity, like, like we see in 1 Chronicles 29. This is why David celebrates what's happening. He points out how incredibly beautiful and good it all is. And then in verse 18, this is, this is what he says at the end of that passage. He says, Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. So David ends all of this with a prayer After he's thanked God for his generosity, he then asks God to help his people keep this mindset, this attitude toward wealth and generosity for generations and generations to come. 
he, he prays and he says, God, I, I want you to ask, that, I, I want to ask you that, that people would always think about their money and their possessions and their resources in the way that these people have today, by seeing everything as if it belonged ultimately to you and not them. What an incredible prayer. Uh, so next, I, I want us to look a little bit at how, at how God actually answered David's prayer in other parts of, of Scripture. So um, if you want to flip over in your Bible, you can. We're going to put this on the screen in just a second. We're going to flip over to Acts chapter 4. So in Acts, a lot of time has passed between First Chronicles and Acts uh, since this whole situation with King David and the temple. So Jesus has, has come. He has walked the earth. He has lived. Uh, he has been crucified. He has come back from the dead. And then before ascending back into heaven, he has given his followers some last instructions. And, and those instructions um, effectively commission what we now call the church. The, the body of people that are to live out the way that Jesus lived, to, to try to put on display what Jesus has done as we follow after him. And so Acts, in many ways, it's, it's a historical book describing how the church got started, the early church doing just that. Um, so we're going to look at, at specifically how the author of Acts describes the way that the early church is interacting uh, with each other and the way that they view their money and their resources. And, and we've talked about different parts of Acts in this regard before, um, but this is a, just a little bit later in Acts. Um, so I think it's really similar to, to what David was praying for in First Chronicles. Look with me in Acts 4, starting in verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Um, this may sound like a, a silly disclaimer to you, but I think it's really important to make this distinction. Sharing all of their resources and their possessions is not some kind of forced or mandated like socialism structure that they had. This is a, this is a conscious, willing decision towards generosity. The passage uses the language, their possessions. It, it makes it clear that this stuff does belong to these people legally. People have ownership of their possessions. They didn't belong to others. It was theirs, but at the same time, they actively chose to not see their things that way. Instead, they believed that it was first God's. They understood everything that they had was from God and for God. And so they gave generously to the people of God who were in need around them. Does that mindset sound familiar to you? Because that's exactly what David is talking about and praying for in First Chronicles. That, that is what he asked God to remind his people of for generations. And God has been answering that prayer. So let's keep reading verse 33 in, in Acts 4. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So let's just stop right there for a second and make sure that we understand what this passage is describing. Um, here, here is how I would guess most people uh, approach the idea of generosity or, or giving to people who are in need. So let's say somebody that you know uh, comes to you and they have, a, they have a $500 need in their life. Something happened. Maybe they had an unexpected trip to the hospital. Maybe their car broke down. Wh whatever it is, something came up. They have a $500 expense to just function in life. They didn't make any poor decisions, nothing like that. They just, they have $500 
they don't have $500 they need to pay. Um, here, here's how I often approach situations like that, and I'm guessing a lot of us do uh, this way. Uh, I, I'll look at my budget or look at my account. I'll see if I have $500 of wiggle room. Um, and for some of us, let's be honest, looking's just a formality because you're like, nah, I don't get $500. <laughs> I know for a fact I don't have that. But optimistically, we look at our budget and we look at our account and we go, do I have $500? Looks like I do not. So I text my friend back and I go, I don't have $500. I'm sorry. Or I do have $500. Here you go. But that's kind of how it goes, right? Something like that. And in the times that we're not, I'm glad that we're at least looking or that we're considering the fact that maybe we can be generous. I think that's a great thing to do. But just so we're clear... That's not the way the early church was doing it. They didn't approach the situation that way. If the early church in Acts that we just read about heard that there was someone in their community that that genuinely needed $500, they would look at their budget in modern-day equivalent. They would say, do I have $500? And if they did not have $500, they would ask another question. They would say, great, what do I own that's worth at least $500 that I can sell? all the way up to, according to this passage, their land and their houses. This is not like a little garage sale fundraiser that they're doing. Nothing wrong with garage sale fundraisers, by the way. If you want to do one, that's great. But they are liquidating major assets in their life for the purpose of just providing for somebody in need around them. But the thought was, there's no reason for me to own this house or this land when somebody next to me doesn't even have what they need. Do you see how different that is, how countercultural that mentality is? And I want to make sure that we see this too. This is not a one-off situation. It wasn't like there was this one time a guy sold his house to provide for somebody in need. This was just them describing the way that they interacted with each other. This is a common occurrence in the early church. They didn't make a show of it. This was just how they operated. Oh, yeah, last week we, we saw another member uh, sell their house to, to give to somebody in need. You know, it's Tuesday, so that's what we do. We sell houses. But that's not, a, not an isolated incident. This is a semi-regular occurrence in the early church. This is how people thought about all of their money and all of their possessions. This was a pattern of their lives. And, and the important part is why. Why did people do this? Why did they think of it this way? And, and it's, it's back in verse 32 in, in Acts 4. Don't miss it. Uh, none of these people saw their possessions as their own. The passage we read just started with, the, they were saying their houses, their property, their land. In their minds, everything that they owned ultimately belonged to God. So whatever need God had for it, that's what they knew they should do. They saw every item that they owned as belonging to God, which meant that they did with it what God would have them do with it. They used it for the good of others to make sure that the people in their community were cared for. That's an incredible picture of God's generosity. So so with all that being said, I I do think that it, it would be very easy for me to stand up here after showing you all these radical examples from, from Acts 4, from Scripture, of, of generosity in the Bible, and go, all right, you guys got to get your act together, right? We've got a long way to go, because I know people in here own houses, 
and I haven't seen you sell them, filthy rich Americans. Like, I'm not, I, I couldn't, I could stand up here and do that, I guess. Uh, I've, I've actually sat through some sermons like that before. Maybe you have as well in, in, in different terms. But what's really cool for me to be able to stand up here as one of your pastors teaching a passage like this and say that this stuff is happening in our church. It absolutely happens. Earlier this year, there was a, there was a college student in our church who was going to have to take a break from school because something with the financial aid fell through. Student loans didn't, didn't pan out like they expected, and they, they couldn't pay for, for that semester of classes. And people in our church banded together to, to give or loan them a combined $15,000 in just a couple of weeks so that they could stay in school. They could keep their schedule. I personally have a very long history of every car issue known to man. If you know me, it's wild. Uh, but there, there have been times where I was not able to, to pay for some of those things that needed to be done. Like there were times where I had a car sitting on blocks in my driveway because the, the whole wheel literally fell off, like the whole thing, it just wrenched off. So I wasn't able to pay for it at the time. Uh, but there, there was one instance that I remember so clearly. I, I've always been so stressed about cars just because this seems to keep happening to me. Uh, it's not user error. I'm such a good driver. But <laughs> it happens so much that it's just like a constant stressor for me. Like nothing is worse than a car problem. And so I remember one time specifically something happened to the car. It wasn't, it wasn't working. I had to get it towed to the shop. I texted somebody in my life group because I was like, I'm freaking out right now because I know that I'm not going to be able to pay for this because it's big and, and we're just strapped right now. And literally before I left the mechanic, they called me and they were like, life group's got it. They covered it. It doesn't matter what it is, we're paying for, for this repair. And, and I feel like every couple of months, honestly, that's not an exaggeration, every couple of months I hear stories about people in our church doing things like this for each other. People who, who need something major in their house fixed. People who need a new car. People in, in their life group or in the church will band together to help provide the things that they need. That happens all the time. And I am not saying that to say, we're good on this. We're perfect. Don't worry about it. But by and large, you guys embody this attitude towards money on a regular basis. And I do not want to, I do not want to stand up here and not mention that and acknowledge that because that's amazing. And, and some of that might be just people giving extra from what they have. Maybe you just have a lot on the side that you've set aside to be able to give away. I, I understand that some people do have that. And that doesn't make it not count. That doesn't mean it's not generous if you had it set aside already. But at the same time, I know that a lot of us, a, a lot of us could not give the amounts that we are giving without it being at least a little sacrificial. There are other things in life that we are giving up that people are going without to be generous towards others. And that is an incredible picture of God's generosity at work. And we only do that kind of thing. We only are willing and only are able because of the belief that our money is not ultimately ours, it's God's. So it only makes sense to do with it what he wants us to do with it. It is not unnoticed. It's not unnoticed by us. It's not unnoticed by the people in our church. It's not unnoticed by people in our city. We are so incredibly encouraged by the way that our church functions in this way. It's a beautiful picture of of the gospel. And so in response to all of that, here's, here's what I will say. Please don't stop. Don't stop doing that. Don't stop 
thinking that way. Don't stop looking for opportunities to do that. If you read through the book of Acts, you will notice that nearly every time it talks about the growth and the explosion of the early church, it's on the heels of the church being radically generous. It's people outside the church seeing that and saying, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why are you doing that? And, and, and that's an opportunity to share the generosity of God. So keep after it. If, if you're already doing it, please continue to look for ways to be generous. Not just generous, sacrificially generous, like we talked about. Giving not just out of your extra, but, but giving when there is need and, and, and making, making that possible. And at the same time as acknowledging how, how amazing that is, I also want to make sure that we don't ever forget the reason why, the reason why we do all of this. I think it would be really easy in, in a church like ours where there is generosity happening regularly, where people are being provided for when they're in need, I think it'd be easy to forget the true motivation behind it. And, and really, the motivation is the most important part. So in that vein, I want, to, I want us to look at one more passage before we're done today. So in just a second, we're going to get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So in 2 Corinthians, um, Paul is, is writing a letter. He's speaking to followers of Jesus in a local church, uh, much, like, much like this, essentially. It's a, it's a community of believers in a city. And, and Paul has been asking several of the churches that he has started to save up money so that they can all rally together to give towards a particular need. But some time has passed, and, and Paul gets word that the Corinthian church that he is writing to hasn't exactly been diligent in setting aside for this need. And so in response, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8. We're going to start in verse 8. He says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So Paul could command them to give, I think. He, he really could have. The church there in Corinth literally exists in the first place because of Paul. They wouldn't be there if he hadn't helped start that. He could have just written, hey, uh, be generous. We talked about this. Stop being so selfish. Stop being greedy. Just give what I told you to give. Signed, sincerely, the only reason that you are here, Paul. <laughs> he, could have, he could have been very blunt with it, but, but he, he doesn't do that. He chooses a totally different strategy. Right? Keep reading in verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So instead of just deciding to command them, Paul chooses instead to remind them of something. He chooses to remind them of the generosity of God himself towards them. Paul considers that to be a far more effective strategy than anything else that he could come up with. He, he says, let me just remind you of what Jesus did for you. Let me remind you of God's generosity towards you through Jesus. And he trusts that, that that realization, that that understanding will actually motivate the Corinthians to be generous in response, far more than him trying to guilt them or shame them into anything. He chooses to remind them of something that is so incredibly important about Jesus, and that's that Jesus 
chose to give up the comforts of heaven and become poor so that we, so that you and I, so that followers of Jesus all throughout history could become rich. And that is how Paul chooses to motivate the Corinthian church. And he he chooses to motivate their generosity, not with guilt, not with shame, not not with a direct command, but with the unbelievable generosity of God himself in sending Jesus. Because Jesus became poor so that you could become rich. And something, something that we need to make sure that we, that we address, the way that Paul uses the word rich in this passage, he is not talking about material wealth. And that may go without saying, but I want to make sure that I do say it. Um, I, I know this because earlier in this passage, uh, he actually says that another group of people who were poor showed rich generosity. He said that people who financially did not have much were rich in their generosity. So we can't be talking about just having lots of money. Whatever Paul means by rich, it is, it is not material wealth necessarily. Apparently, I think based on this passage, it, it seems like in Paul's mind, how generous you are, how generous we are, has absolutely nothing to do with how much money we have. And instead, it actually has everything to do with how you perceive God's generosity towards you and Jesus. Because if you understand that Jesus chose to become poor so that you could become rich, it's, it's a no-brainer for you to become poor so that other people can have what they need. That's only logical, right? If, if Jesus impoverished himself more than we could ever imagine on our behalf, then why would we not become a little poorer ourselves so that someone else could, could have what they need? That would be a very natural response to the generosity of God. So I, I just want to end. Uh, I want to end here this week. Last last week we ended very practically, um, and this week it's a little more conceptual. The way that we're gonna the end, going to end. Uh, so here's the question that I want you to consider. I, I want you to to think about. Um, what are your thoughts on the generosity of God? When you think of God, when you, when you have that picture in your mind, do you think of him as being generous? Do you think of him as being the one who gave you every single thing that you possess? When you, when you think of your house, if you have a house, do you think, I am so glad that I worked hard to earn the money to buy this house? Or do you think, I am so Glad that God gave me the means to buy this house so that I can use it for his purposes. When you think about your job, do do you think, I am so glad that I am talented enough to get this job? Or do you think, I am so glad that God gave me this job so that I can use it as a way to minister to those around me and I can use the paycheck from it in ways that he wants me to use it? Do you think of God as being generous towards you? And here's why I want us to consider that question, because the answer to that question, the answer to the question of how do we think about God's generosity, is what's behind all of this. So here's what I'd be willing to bet. I I think uh, to those that see everything as exclusively our own and no one else's, it belongs to us, I think we're going to have a really difficult time with, with all of God's calls to be generous with our money, with our time, with our resources, with anything. 
It's going to feel like pulling teeth, honestly, to loosen our grip on those things in our lives in any way. But at the same time, those, those of us that, that truly see everything that we have as coming from God himself and therefore existing for God and his purposes, I think, I think we're going to become some of the most generous people on the planet. Regardless of financial situation, regardless of the amount of money that you have, regardless of life circumstances, our generosity is going to flow from that understanding in incredible ways. I think we're going to be a lot like God's people in First Chronicles, or in First Chronicles twenty-nine that David is is thanking God for. I think we're going to be like the people in Acts four, people that said, "I am so glad." that God entrusted me with this stuff so that I can be generous with it. We're going we're gonna to live in ways that, that make us the continued answer to David's prayer. We're going to become living demonstrations of God's generosity. So as we, as we end this morning, um, we're going to respond in, in just a minute with, with songs, we're going to respond by, by taking communion for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And we respond that way because of God's generosity. We are acknowledging God's generosity towards us. We are thanking God for his generosity, specifically his generosity in sending Jesus to earth to die for us. And, and we, we take communion to remember that. We, it's a physical representation of that reality of us acknowledging the generosity of God. And when we sing these songs, they're not just words that we're saying, but, but they, are, they are speaking truth about the reality of God's generosity and Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. And, and as we remember that, as we, as we participate in those things together, I want us to ask uh, the, same, the same thing that David asked, that he would keep that heart in us always as we follow Jesus together. So I invite you to pray.